In my whole career, I've never seen something with such poor effectiveness, such significant unprecedented harms. Today, I sit down with cardiologist Dr. Asim Malatra to discuss extensive COVID-19 vaccine data released by the UK government, comparing outcomes for vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. To add more insult to injury, this is now one of the most lucrative products in the history of medicine. What has been the cost of speaking out for Malatra? And why does he believe that over the last few decades, drug companies have actually had a net negative impact on society? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest-rated firms in the country, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Dr. Asim Malatra, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. It's, I'm delighted to see you again, Yan. Well, Dr. Malatra, the last time we spoke, um, you were telling me that you believe that these genetic vaccines need to be removed from the market for everyone. Um, and I just want to see where, how things have evolved uh, since our last chat in your thinking. Yeah, so I think um, since we last spoke, there's been more I think more definitive and more precise data that's emerged certainly in terms of the benefits of the Pfizer vaccine in particular, which is what's been continues to be used in the, in the UK. And uh, the UK government actually released data, I think this is probably the first government in the world to release such extensive data looking at per million people vaccinated versus per million people unvaccinated in terms of the benefits against severe COVID. And the numbers are really quite startling. So if you are 70 years old, you have to vaccinate 2,500 people to prevent one person being hospitalized with severe COVID. If you're 60, it's about 5,700. And then when you get under 50s, you're talking about tens to hundreds of thousands of people need to be vaccinated to prevent one severe hospitalization. Now, this is non-randomized data, but what that means is it's likely an overestimate of the benefits because we know there's something called healthy user bias. In other words, people who are more likely to be vaccinated tend to be healthier than the people who are unvaccinated. And that's pretty, we, we know that on average that tends to be the case. So the efficacy, the effectiveness, Jan, if you like, of this vaccine, I mean, it's been reinforced with this data, is extremely poor versus a known absolute rate of harms of at least 1 in 800 on the reanalysis of Pfizer and Moderna's own trials. So, you know, Based on that calculation you just described, it's a total no-brainer. It's a complete joke, actually. I mean, it's, 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 in my whole career, 
analyzing and looking at all sorts of different drugs over 20 years, I've never seen something with such poor effectiveness, such significant unprecedented harms, you know, that we have rolled out to the, the population. It is extraordinary. And to add more insult to injury, this is now one of the most lucrative products in the history of medicine. You know, it's made Pfizer $100 billion. Um, but actually, it isn't that surprising because John Ioannidis, professor of medicine at Stanford, somebody I describe as a Stephen Hawking-like figure in medicine, in a previous publication, he said, the greater the financial interests in a given field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. So have you had any further thoughts on about why all this is continuing? I mean, there's these vaccines are still available. They're still in some countries being recommended even for, you know, people who are at near zero risk, you know, children and so forth. Yeah, I think there's a number of factors involved in that, Jan. I think um, first and foremost, there's still the psychological barriers that need to be overcome first, which are one of willful blindness. Um, by medical establishment, by governments, that they are essentially turning a blind eye to the truth about the, the vaccines because they want to avoid conflict and protect prestige, reduce anxiety, that kind of thing. Um, and I think also we can't you know, underestimate the power of these multinational corporations, Big Pharma in this instance, who have so much control over governments, over medical bodies, over regulate, uh, regulators that no one wants to take them on. Um, and, and I think that's a big problem. So it, it is an issue of regulatory capture? Is that how you see it? Yeah, I think ultimately to understand this, you have to look at the history of how we got to this point and uh, what's happened really um, probably been accelerated by, I suspect, well-intentioned neoliberal economic policies put forward by the likes of Ronald Reagan in the 80s and Margaret Thatcher in the UK is that what we've had increasing unchecked visible and invisible power of these big corporations whose only interest, legal obligation, is to produce profit for their shareholders and not give you the best treatment. And, and that's what we're seeing now, the end result of that. But unfortunately, they are not, these entities, if you like, um, are immoral in the way that they conduct their business. I mean, I have described it uh, as being often, you know, uh, psychopathic. So everything that emanates from that kind of cultural behavior downstream in terms of um, you know, uh, smearing of people who are calling them out to um, silencing of whistleblowers to people who have a duty and responsibility to speak up being afraid to speak out is because I think it's all a downstream effect of, of these psychopathic drivers of ill health. Let's switch gears a little bit and go to you know, your field of expertise, cardiology. And uh, I guess I want to understand what is, as of today, as we're writing, what does the data tell us about the impacts on the heart? Yeah, so um, in the last few months, there's been, again, uh, a lot of discussion about the fact we've got excess deaths happening in many countries around the world. A significant proportion, if not the biggest proportion of those excess deaths are cardiovascular. And uh, Professor Norman Fenton, who's a professor of risk from um, uh, Queen Mary University, emeritus professor in London, very well respected, very well published, he did a very recent analysis. And his own analysis suggests that half of all the excess deaths since 2021 uh, in the UK are because of the COVID vaccines, which is really quite shocking. And that's 
you know, mainly going to be cardiovascular driven, um, out of also cardiac arrests, heart attacks, arrhythmias, that kind of thing. So um, I think that just again reinforces the, the, the dangers of these vaccines and um, it's not being addressed, it's not being uh, acknowledged by the establishment, by medical bodies. They're, they're ignoring it, they're denying that it's got any link with the vaccines and it's quite clear that that's a, con a big contributing factor. Um, what's the best you can tell us about the mechanism of action? Why is this happening? Yeah, so um, the, the spike protein from the vaccine that gets distributed throughout the body and goes to pretty much every major organ system, including the heart, causes either a direct toxic effect to the tissues of the heart or an autoimmune reaction. And that's probably the best reason, that you know, the best way of understanding what's happening. I think the most worrying aspect from my perspective as a cardiologist is that it causes an acceleration in coronary artery disease. And what that means is there will be late effects. For example, my father had a cardiac arrest six months after having the second dose of the vaccine. And from my perspective now looking back, that was most likely the cause of his cardiac arrest because it accelerated something that was relatively mild, became quite severe within the space of a few months, and then drove him to have a cardiac arrest. So we're here at the FLCCC conference, and uh, which is of course talking about treatment, both of long COVID and what I guess what they call vaccine-induced long COVID. I think that's the term I've heard. And so in terms of you know, dealing with these, with these issues, what, what, what do we know? There's still quite a lot of unknowns at the moment in terms of how we best manage these people with, with vaccine-induced long COVID. Um, I've been you know, managing some of them myself in the UK. Uh, one of my, the first approach for, is, is to optimize their lifestyle, like, because we know that there is definitely an association with people who are vulnerable to vaccine injuries uh, in the same way that people who are vulnerable to COVID. So excess body fat, for example. So, you know, get them on a, on a healthy diet, cut out the ultra-processed foods, cut out the low-quality carbs and the sugars. Are they doing moderate amounts of, um, you know, exercise on a daily basis? What are their stress and sleep levels like? Once you do that and, and, and focus on all of those factors, many of these symptoms actually improve considerably. But of course, at FLCCC, um, you know, many of the doctors here are using protocols which involve vitamin infusions, um, in some cases, use of ivermectin. So I'm curious to learn about those at the conference as well and see what else is being used. I see. So this is part of your, this is part of your kind of exploratory looking for possible treatment methods for your patients. Absolutely. You know, uh, we all learn, you know, from each other. So I'm always curious to see what other people are doing. What is the situation in the UK right now relative to the US? I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, recently there were some headlines were made when Andrew Bridgen was expelled from the UK Conservative uh, Party. I want to talk a little bit about that. You, you're, you have a closer knowledge of these events. I understand you've actually, you know, worked with him as well. Yeah, so uh, as a public health advocate and activist, one of the things that um, you know, I uh, tried to do was engage politicians. I've done that historically. You know, I was a key figure in bringing about a soda tax in the UK because of that. Um, so actually in December, I, um, I spoke, uh, in fact, not December, I, I spoke towards the end of last year in Parliament and Andrew Bridgen was there and uh, he contacted me. Uh, having heard my talk and my lecture, he was, I think it, it, it uh, got him thinking and he was m much more awake to what was going on. And he asked me to help him write a speech in Parliament, which I did. And he gave a speech um, and there wasn't many people there. I went to personally witness it, he invited me, which is really a really good experience. But it was ultimately, I think, six million views through social media. So people were interested in it. 
and then as after that, you know, he obviously made his stand on calling for a suspension of the vaccine. Um, you know, he, d he did a tweet where he compared the vaccine rollout to, um, well, he said it was the worst crime against humanity, or some a cardiologist said to him that it was the worst crime against humanity since the Holocaust. And, uh, and that, unfortunately, was weaponized against him. And uh, he was called, uh, you know, uh, the Secretary for Health, former Secretary for Health called him an anti-vaxxer, uh, an anti-Semitic in Parliament. So he was suspended by the Tory party. And then only recently, in the last couple of days, they've, um, they've uh, kicked him out completely from the Tory party. So he now has to run as an independent. But great credit to Andrew Bridgen in the sense he stood his ground and he has said that, you know, because of what he's done, even if one child is saved from harm, that it was worth, worth it, well worth it. You've also encountered some kinds of pushback to, since you decided to come out as someone who is, you know, against the deployment of these vaccines. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, there was, um, I managed to speak on BBC News around the vaccines when there was a discussion initially about statins, but I said, listen, there's an elephant in the room here that we're missing here, excess deaths, probably being driven to a large degree by the vaccines. Uh, and then there was a backlash. <laughs> there was a backlash in The Guardian and The Times. Um, you know, the irony is The Guardian group, I've written 19 opinion editorials over the years for The Guardian group, including three front page commentaries. And, and a lot of them actually about the whole corruption of the pharmaceutical industry on, on medicine. Um, but they went for me, it was a hatchet job. Um, and I think they, the headline was something along the lines of BBC criticized for allowing cardiologists to hijack you know, their program with false COVID jab claim. And uh, there were lots of people commenting on, on me and a character assassination, that kind of thing. Um, but actually, I saw it as a great sign of progress because once you start getting attacked like this in the mainstream, it means you're, you know, the, the, um, you're over the target. You know? And uh, one of my inspirations is Mahatma Gandhi. And he said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. So for me, it, it was a, I was actually very, I was expecting this to happen and I was very pleased actually. When, when this sort of attack came my way because it meant that was, we were making progress. Just uh, going back, I remember watching that uh, BBC interview. And uh, so just a little bit on, on the inside, what, what, what was the reaction to you changing the topic? Like you know, it's it's, Jan, it's really interesting. So the producer that called me beforehand and talked to me about statins, because that was the main topic of discussion. And, and your area of expertise. You know, oh, my well. area of expertise. Yeah, yeah. I've written a book, yeah. you know, my last book was, was a bestseller and it was based upon that. And I've written medical journal publications, you know, I've done a lot of analyses on statins over the years. Um, the interesting thing was the text message immediately after from the producer was, thank you, that was very interesting. I also got text from another BBC journalist in a regional BBC program in one of the other areas of the country and said, Dr. Mahotra, can you come on and talk about this again in an hour? And actually I couldn't because I had the patient to see. So I said, I'm really sorry, I can't do it because I've got a patient, unfortunately. So she thanked me. Then several hours later, the original producer that booked me in, who said that was very interesting, suddenly said, you seem to have deviated away from the original topic. So clearly someone higher up has scolded or whatever else. So, but what it tells you is, Jan, that, the, um, that you know, most of these journalists probably you know, thought that the interview was, was, was interesting and it was well articulated, but didn't fully know that they were going to an area where it was a, you know, um, something that shouldn't be discussed, which meant that you know, they were being leaned on 
by people, by higher, higher powers. So the regional BBC producer didn't return your call again? Or? No, no. Well, they, I, I couldn't make that interview. Right. So, you know, she didn't, um, you know, call again after that. Because by that stage, it was then The Guardian. It was the, it was the main, like, the most read of The Guardian website. I mean, it was a top story. Um, you know, me hijacking the BBC, apparently. So um, I suspect everybody knew then by that stage. We reached out to the BBC, but they did not immediately respond to our request for comment. Where do you see this going right now? I mean, you're, you're a pretty big picture thinker. Where do you see this going? Well, I think the, the needle's definitely shifted. If you look, there's a massive disconnect between what the establishment is telling us and what, what the public feel, and we know that because people are not turning up for boosters. Um, there was a recent um, article which has just been retracted, but for, with no good reason, BMC infectious diseases, which was a kind of survey analysis of American citizens trying to estimate what the true rate of serious adverse events are in the population based upon asking them questions. And that's not unreasonable. You know, in medicine, 80% of your diagnosis comes from the history. If you're a good doctor and you know your stuff and you ask the patient properly and ask them questions, the patient will give you the answer you know, eight times out of ten before you even examine them in terms of what the likely diagnosis is. So that kind of approach was used in this analysis. And it was pretty extraordinary. Uh, the results suggested up to one million Americans in 2021 may have suffered a serious adverse event with 278,000 fatalities from the COVID vaccines, which is just extraordinary. But it, it may well be closer to the truth than, than people realize. So. Uh, I think that clearly there is um, progress in terms of dissemination of the truth. But, uh, Jan, the, the root cause of this problem in the first place is because of undemocratic, unethical and unscientific laws. What does that mean? The fact that we have uh, a, a powerful legal entity that is big pharma that is psychopathic, uh, quite often in the way it conducts business, who are able to allow um, their, uh, to basically keep data hidden and, and push regulators to approve their drugs. Um, so this basically means we need to have change in regulation. So the, the solution to this problem, I think, is gonna happen in the courts. And one thing that I've been involved in recently is I'm a, one of the key witnesses in a, in a very significant court case in South Africa, mm -hmm. uh, a landmark case, if you like, where a grassroots organization called FASA, Freedom Alliance of South Africa, made up of doctors, academics, journalists, teachers, have, um, Basically, they are the, the main sort of client launching a case against the government of South Africa and the medical regulator saying that the approval of the Pfizer vaccine was irrational because it was based upon Pfizer's own data, which was kept commercially confidential and therefore unlawful. And if this case is successful, it will go to court where all the evidence will be heard then it will set a huge precedent worldwide and that would call for that would ultimately mean the vaccine would be withdrawn it would be well publicized and um and i think that's where we go, we're heading you know we've seen pfizer's own data from the early days and it you know suggests that these products should never have gone out in the first place there was never any testing for transmission given the publicly available data now, some of it through FOIA, some of it through research that's been done. Um, how is it that you think things aren't actually shifting in a quicker way? Is it I, just, is it, well, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I still think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people invested in this vaccine. 
not mm. just uh, you know uh, psychologically invested in it. A lot of people believed it. A lot of people convinced their friends and family to take it. They believed their doctors. The doctors coerced people into having it. So the biggest barrier to the truth right now, um, Jan, is the psychological barrier. So I think what we need to do is we need to approach this, you know, with the people that are awakened or enlightened and people who understand what's happening. We have to treat those people who are not enlightened yet with compassion and understanding why they believe the way they, why have they been misled, and we need to walk them through it. And that, that's going to take a little bit more time. How, how can it be done if the mechanism that we've discovered that effectively manufactures perceived consensus in our society. You know, it's not just media is a big part of it, big media, um, but also big tech is another part of it, and actually multiple institutions, including some of these agencies. Right? This is what was exposed through the Twitter files and some you know, lost discovery in numerous US lawsuits. How can you raise kind of a broader societal awareness when when those mechanisms are uninterested and, or opposed? Uh, I think we just keep talking about it, having a conversation, disseminating the truth, and ultimately the bubble will burst and people, it will get to a tipping point where there'll be enough groundswell of public anger at the injustice that's happened that those institutions, uh, you know, so much sunlight will be shone on them that they will have to react and, and that reaction hopefully will be a, a reaction of of change, you know, acceptance that there's a problem, and then a um, an acknowledgement and a desire to convince the public that we are not going to let this happen again, and we're going to institute changes in the system so that people aren't, aren't harmed like this ever again. So you're optimistic? Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. I, I think that the truth is very powerful, and that you know we're heading towards. Um, we already are actually in, in many ways in hell. You know, what's actually happened to the, the population of the world and the horrific vaccine injuries and the deaths that have happened is just extraordinary. Um, but we are resilient people and people want the truth and uh, I think the truth will prevail. And that's very, very powerful. There's nothing more powerful than that. You know, I've been kind of wondering, many of the you know, doctors here at, at this event, but also that have been outspoken, you know, and you, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, you're over the target when they're attacking you, right? That's, I've, heard that from a number of people. Have there been any professional repercussions since you, know, since you came out, since that time? Um, I mean, there are stuff going on behind the scenes, certainly. Um, there are petitions going around, you know, calling for the General Medical Council that hold my license to investigate me. Um, there's trolling on, on social media. Oh, wait, you're, so, you're so casual about that. That sounds terrible. Yeah, I mean, the, no, the, listen, the it's, not, it's, yeah. Not, it's not nice, mm -hmm. but it was something that I kind of expected was going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, when you're in this, when you're fighting for this, you've got to also, I also, you know, um, accept and understand that, uh, you know, part of being a successful public health advocate isn't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. Uh, so, you know, I have to be, I have to rise above it, to be perfectly honest, like many of us, uh, when this comes our way, and, and just, um, just keep pushing forward. You know, I think this is something I haven't talked to you about much before, but uh, obviously you, by looking at statins, you essentially played a significant role at changing the discussion around this drug. Well, maybe just very briefly tell me about that, and then also like what, 
you know, professionally what you faced in the process? Because maybe you just, you, you've already experienced this or some level, something comparable. Yeah, no, in some yeah. ways, actually, the backlash I've experienced with the vaccine issue, um, you know, I don't undermine, undermine all of this, but it's, it, in some ways it's a walk in the park for me compared to what happened with statins. <laughs> and the reason I got involved in looking at statins is because my primary interest obviously is cardiology. And it's like, well, why are we not really curbing heart disease if statins are so great? So once I started looking at the data properly, I realized that they, uh, the perception amongst cardiologists, amongst many doctors, amongst the public about their benefits was grossly exaggerated. Uh, and I was calling for informed consent, you know, looking at the absolute benefits of statins if you are low risk of heart disease, which is most of the people who are prescribed statins, certainly in the US and many parts of the world, there is no mortality benefit and people aren't told that. In other words, you're not going to live any longer if you take the statin religiously every day for, for years. Uh, and gives you about 1% benefit in preventing a non-fatal heart attack or stroke. So I'm all for um, pro-informed uh, consent uh, when it comes to statins and I was involved in, in, in that um, through publications in the BMJ and etc. But there was a backlash because, you know, statins are one of the most lucrative drugs in the history of medicine. It's a trillion dollar industry. And uh, of course, when you threaten those industries, if your work threatens an industry like that, then you are going to be attacked sometimes unrelentingly and viciously. And that's kind of what happened many, many years ago with statins. But I came through it and I survived and I changed the helped change the discussion. Um, and I think that gave me that kind of um, strength, you know, to be able to go into this with the vaccine issue and with the publication, even being told by some of my close friends saying, you know, I wouldn't do this if I were you, you're going to lose your medical license. But I thought to myself, well, this is so important. The truth is way more important that um, I was willing to accept that fate if that was what was going to come my way. Because mm. I can't sleep at night. That's just, that's the way I am. So but at the outset, you, you already told yourself, well, this might happen, but I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I was still going to go ahead and do it. I think you're the first person who has in one of these interviews with someone who has, you know, stood up for the data, let's say, and faced the backlash to call it a walk in the park. <laughs> well, you know, it's strange, but in a way, it, 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 it has been compared to what I went through with statins, because at one stage with the statins discussion, there was a call for retraction of my paper and a paper written by John Abramson from Harvard in, in the 2013 October edition of the BMJ. And uh, ultimately, the, it was, they, the BMJ and even the editor was put under so much pressure by one of the most you know, influential and powerful man in, men, men in medicine, not just in the UK, but in the world, who is the, got his knighthood from the work he's done on statins, saying that we had caused harm by exaggerating the side effects issue and people will die because of it. You know, it, was, it, was, it was high stakes and it was in the front page of The Guardian, etc. So um, it ultimately, the BMJ sent the articles, including mine, for an independent review to see whether they would be retracted. Now, going through that process as a junior doctor at the time, junior cardiologist, if it was retracted, that would be essentially career destroying. Um, but the panel came back 6-0 in our favor. There was no call for retraction. There was a, a minor correction that needed to be made with caveats around the side effects issue. Um, but yeah, I went through that and then I carried on pushing forward. So um, for me, the... Um, you know, I think the other thing to say, Jan, as well, is that the truth is also very empowering. Once you know the truth, and then you know you have a platform to articulate it, and you know that there are people who are going to come out to support you, which has happened throughout my career, I think that gives me strength. It's a lonely path sometimes, but it gives me strength to just keep going. And also, you have to be, you know, I'm, I've, like all of us, we suffer 
uh, you know, in our lives in different ways. But I've had so much tragedy in terms of losing my, my older brother when I was young. My mother died prematurely and there were NHS failures there. My dad died. Um, so for me, uh, it was a lot of a, a deep dive personally thinking about how do I move forward? How do I take meaning from this? How do I do something constructive? Uh, but also a, a realization that you have to be greater than what you suffer. That's beautiful. Um, what, what, what is the meaning in this now for you? Um, the meaning is that we, I, I try and see it as a, in a way, you know, all, through all this chaos and this uh, sadness, if you like, and despair and the way that all the world is going, why don't we use this as an opportunity for creating something new, something different, something positive? You know, the, Einstein said, in every crisis lies great opportunity. So I look at it from that perspective. You know, we can actually create a, a healthcare system which genuinely puts the needs of patients and the public first and um, optimizes their health. And when we talk about health, you know, I'm not a big fan at the moment of the World Health Organization, but one of the things that I do like is their definition of health, which is a state of complete mental, physical, and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease. So everything I do and everything we should be doing and everything we can be doing um, in terms of the medical profession is to focus and understand that definition and then ask ourselves questions. In everything we do as a doctor, are we really genuinely improving our patient outcomes? And once people get understand that in, in detail, then you then start questioning. If the patients aren't getting better, the question is why? And then there's a realization that actually what's happened is doctors are making clinical decisions on biased and commercially corrupted information. And when you explain that to people, when I give lectures and talks and I, I walk them through it and people are, you see that people become empowered and you see that people can, you know, you can change the way they think in just half an hour, an hour of a lecture. For me, that's very, very satisfying. So I think people need to understand that the real power actually is with us and with the people, <laughs> not with these big, you know, um, the privileged few and these wealthy elite. Um, they're only able to sustain that power because we allow it. So as we finish up, what are your policy prescriptions? I think the most important thing that people need to understand, uh, Jan, is that there are too many people with financial conflicts of interest that are influencing health policy. So the most important thing we can do is actually remove those financial conflicts of interest. It shouldn't be there in medicine at all because it's going to corrupt the doctor-patient relationship. And what does that mean? Well, it means, you know, first and foremost, the regulators, medical regulators shouldn't be taking money from industry. Um, drug companies themselves, you know, I think their track record over the last few decades, overall they've had a negative impact on society because of the fact that the way that they exaggerate the safety and um, the benefits of their, uh, their pharma pharmacological products. Let me just, let me just say, you said drug companies have overall had a negative effect on society. Yes. That's, that, that's interesting. So, for example, between 2000 and 2008, um, uh, of the 667 drugs approved by the FDA, 75% of them were essentially copies of old ones. So, you know, they change the molecules here and there. They patent these drugs. It's huge waste, and who pay, we, we pay it. The taxpayer pays for it. And by the time somebody's worked out it's no better than a, a, a cheaper and possibly safer drug, they've moved on to the next one. Only 11% of drugs were truly innovative. 
So the, the waste in its own tells you that the, the impact has been overall negative. In France, something similar was done there, and they found that there were double the amount of drugs, about 15% of the drugs, were the, of the well, almost 1,000 that were approved between 2002 and 2011, were um, uh, found to be more harmful than beneficial. And 50%, again, were copies of old ones. So I think it's quite clear that the overall impact of the drug industry on society in the last two or three decades has been a negative one. That's uh those are, those are some astounding numbers. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that people aren't so aware of it as well, Jan, which we haven't spoken about before, is there is a socio-cultural problem here in terms of how people perceive medicine. They think it's an exact science. Uh, science is overall objective. And if there's something new and there's a technological progress, it must be better. But that isn't true. Medicine is not an exact science. It never has been. It's an applied science. It's not like physics or chemistry. Um, when you look at actually what's been had the greatest impact on increasing our life expectancy in the last 150 years in America. We've had an increase in 40 years in life expectancy. When you ask educated public health graduates, um, you know, they wrongly think that 32 of those 40 years have happened because of modern medicine, when the reality is about three and a half to five years. Most of what's determined our increase in life expectancy has been through public health interventions, safe drinking water, seatbelts in cars, safer working environments, smoke-free buildings. You know, the single most important healthcare breakthrough in the last five decades in the Western world was taxation of cigarettes. Most people don't know this. So we have to have that conversation actually about people's perception of what modern medicine does. And it's not that we're throwing the baby out of the bathwater and there isn't a role, of course there is, but most of what determines your health has nothing to do with what your doctor does. So let me get you back to your original thought. That This is the fascinating, perhaps worth another episode in the, in the future as well. But um, so you were, you were saying, get rid of the conflicts of interest yep. and then you know get the drug companies to actually be a net positive. I think that was your second point. Yeah, well, listen, I mean, we, <laughs> in fact, the current system isn't encouraging true innovation because they just, it's rigged. So they can do these things, these manipulations of old molecules, of changed molecules around of, of old drugs and then repackage them as new drugs and patent them and make lots of money. So I think what should happen is drug companies they, they're allowed to develop drugs, but they shouldn't be allowed to test them themselves and then hold on to the raw data. They need to be independently tested, and then you know that you're going to get more reliable data. And then the other thing as well, which is you know, a particular problem in America, is that why are, you know, two primary purposes of government are to protect their citizens from external aggressors and to protect their citizens from disease, as, as in they have a role to play in ensuring their population is healthy. Why are politicians, of all parties, allowed to take money from industry for, for, for campaigns like, you know, from pharmaceutical industry, for example. It's a huge conflict of interest. These governments, these politicians, are ultimately influencing and, and uh, the laws that at the moment aren't working for the people that allow these excesses and manipulations to occur, where, you know, information is corrupted and biased. And then look at the, the whole vaccine issue. I mean, it was mandated. Absolutely extraordinary. Something that when you reflect on it now, probably should not have been, you know, uh, a vaccine that should not have been injected into a single human because of the safety issues being so huge, was not just coerced onto people, but mandated onto people. This is just 
beyond horrific. When you, when you actually look at it dispassionately, you realize what's happening. And that's only been allowed to occur because of these laws that these politicians have, a, have the power to change. And they cannot do that if they're taking money from the very industries that are benefiting from these undemocratic and unjust laws. Pfizer did not immediately respond to our request for comment. Any final thoughts as we finish? Um, I think, Jan, we're making great progress. Certainly in the last six months since we last spoke, a lot has happened. I think the awareness has increased massively. Um, we're seeing countries like Switzerland, for example, that have now said that they are not going to recommend the COVID mRNA vaccines uh, and that it's a discussion between doctors and, and patients. Um, and, uh, you know, the awareness is going global. So uh, I think we're making great progress. But, you know, when you speak the truth, you've got to let go of the outcome. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm hopeful. Well, Dr. Asim Alatra, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Likewise, Jan. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Dr. Asim Alatra and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.